by law students for past, present, and future law students bringing you information to help your career this is The Law School Show let's go buddy boom, that was a high five of accomplishment two law school grads fresh off the press coming at you in this intro Rish, how you feeling man, congrats Oh man, congratulations to you too. I feel great. We just wrapped up our journey in Ottawa yesterday. That's good. I didn't the belts. Oh yeah. yeah, went by fast, but a little bit wider, a little bit better looking. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I'm adding the latter one for sure. <laughs> what do we got today, Rish? Well, today we have our second part of the interview with Professor Dainsis. And we are very happy to announce that. University of Ottawa's William Sivas International Commercial Arbitration Mood Team actually won the competition this year. Very impressive. Yeah. You know how many universities? 200. 299 university and University of Ottawa came first. And not only that, the Philip T. Jessup comp uh, competition that takes place, University of Ottawa managed to place in the top 16 round as well. So all of those tips, all of those tricks leading to championship moot success is exactly what Dane Sis is talking about uh, in this episode. Specifically, he's going to talk about how to prepare your oral arguments, how to respond to questions, really good info here for anyone interested in mooting or just about uh, oral advocacy in general. Exactly. And we also wanted to thank all of you for your continued support since we started the law school show back in September. It's been a great journey for the both of us and we also have an expanded team now. Please feel free to reach out to us if you have any questions, if you have any suggestions, any ideas at info at the law school show dot com. Make sure you're subscribing on iTunes, on Stitcher, uh, your phone will certainly have a podcast app. Search the Law School Show, uh, bring it with you on the go. That's the best way to consume long-form conversations. Exactly. And you can also reach us out on any social media platforms. We're on Facebook as well and Twitter. Just look for The Law School Show. Check out the conversation there and uh, thelawschoolshow.com. So I think that's, uh, I think that's it, Professor Anthony Dameses. Enjoy. Well, let's fast forward to a point where we have done written submissions and now students are preparing for the oral submissions. Mm -hmm. You know, there are two schools of thoughts in regards to this, writing down your entire script or not, and this is something we briefly touched on earlier. What's your thought on somebody actually fully writing down their script and knowing exactly what they have to say versus just writing down bullet points and then uh, developing what they want to say on the spot? My teams are known for at the moot not having papers in front of them. Mm -hmm. The assumption from that, a wrong assumption, is that my students don't have written scripts. So now I'm revealing secrets that you shouldn't be revealing. I am a proponent of writing the script start to finish, capital letter to final period, at the outset. The reason I like that is that your brain has to go through the exercise of organizing the argument, thinking about the right words that you want to use. You cannot do that standing up. And even if you could, it's possible that those words will change from one presentation to another, which means when you're going back to try to assess what went right or went wrong, it's much more difficult. So I say as a starting point, you write out your script. It also gives you a very nice visual of how long your script should be. If I poll people and I ask them, how many pages is a 15-minute speech, most people haven't got a clue. Yeah. 
So this, especially with the point I made earlier about 110 words per minute, you can visualize how long a 15-minute or a 10-minute presentation looks like. So there are lots of reasons to actually write it. But once it's written, now we're moving away from it. So kind of the, you've trained your, your brain, some might call it priming your brain, brain for the info, and then you move away from your script. Then you need to start taking the thoughts of each paragraph and reducing it to one or two punchy lines. From there, you take those lines and you turn them into one or two key words, and then you should be able to make your argument with one sheet of paper that just has keywords. And eventually, if you don't even need the keywords, it's even better. So, yes, you write out a script, but you never read a script. The point I always make is it's not a reading competition, it's an oral advocacy competition. But to get to that point, you have to have a written script. What else? Uh, three more tips that um, a mooter can apply in order to get that oral argument type in preparation. You should have a very clear idea of what is the purpose of your argument. Too often I see students coming up and saying, I have three parts of an argument. They don't really know what the story is. They're not able to come up and say, at the end of the day, this is about maybe a weaker company being taken advantage of by a stronger company, and what rights do these weaker companies have? And I'm here to tell you that based on the law that applies here, they have no rights. You know, that could be your theme. That's your story. If you, don't, if you don't know that story, it's always hard to just handle questions or lines of questioning because you don't know what you can concede and what you can't concede. So first tip is once you've done the writing, step back and try to finish a sentence, this case is about this or the equities of this case, the fairness is about this or that. You need to have a really clear idea of a simple tagline. Sorry, would you ever say those equities in your role presentation though at the, at the outset? Or do, does that come off it too cheesy almost? Yeah, I th that's the risk. So I, I would say that's the risk that it comes off as too scripted, uh, too formulaic, and open to somebody attacking it. Because mm -hmm. It, these moot problems, as with most cases in a court, if you're in at the stage of litigation, there's probably not a really simple slam dunk position one way or the other. So it's hard to use general terms to just say everything my client that had ha that happened to my client is unfair, and everything that I did to the opposing side is absolutely fair. Mm -hmm. That's really the case. It's not a kind of case that ends up in court. So to come up and say, oh, my client has been mistreated and the other guy's a bully, it, it's very easy for a judge to say, yeah, but what about that thing that your client did? Yeah. And then your whole opening is thrown off. So it is difficult. Uh, but you, and that's why if you're going to open with a theme, it's got to be a fair theme. So it might be, although a smaller company is and this could be on the other side, although a smaller company is often at a disadvantage against a larger company, so now that's your concession if you're representing the larger company, say, because of the way this contract was structured, we see that the smaller company was properly protected and nothing that happened here was unconscionable. And then, it's, then you're preparing for, well, what about this? You say, yeah, of course, that's what the law would be, and it would be wrong, but we have a different fact here. Look at this clause in the contract. That deals with that concern. Mm -hmm. So to so the point that 
it's okay to have those opening theme or equity, but make sure it's very reasonable. Very, yeah, that's when you're presenting it. Very reasonable. And it's not easy. Yeah. Opening themes to get before you know your case, nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. You have to run through your case often to figure out what the real themes are. That's yeah. why with our teams, it's usually only a week or two out that we've actually perfected a theme. Yeah. And before that, the entire process is just practice, practice, practice until you figure out what a theme might be. Yeah. I mean, we usually we have a theme as we're going in, but to perfect the wording of it, I should probably say, because we often have a theme as we're making it. Sometimes we don't realize what our theme is until we sit down and try to figure it out to put it in one or two sentences. But yeah. Are you a proponent of listening to a recording of yourself? Yes, especially video recordings. Video recording is great. I have so many examples. I can think of one uh, of, a, of a student we had, it's probably going back four years, and I would tell her that when she would listen to arbitrators, her eyes were what I call dart eyes. They're just darting around everywhere, left, right, left, right. And I would tell her, say, you know, your eyes are darting around and it's a bit distracting. The first time I showed her on video, she just looked at, oh, I see what you're talking about. So sometimes the video is perfect. You don't need to do more than that. So yes, I like the videotaping. It also, when I know that a student has many, many issues, I'll use a video to point out only a few and let them notice the others. And if they still do that, I might come back to it. But often a video is such a cold shower that a student says, I never knew I was doing that. Mm -hmm. And I don't, that, I don't need to do anything then. My job is done hitting play. And then it's just, well, let's fix it now. Yeah, I'm a big proponent of it. Is there anything else that you recommend uh, students do apart from practicing a lot before their arguments? Well, you could do just an audio version mm -hmm. because also audio, without the distraction or the sometimes somebody, somebody can use their body language very effectively, but the voice alone isn't good. And you have different kinds of judges. You have some who are very visual, and then there are others who they might be looking at you, but they're not really looking at you. So it's all about what they're hearing. So you should just listen to the audio to hear is your voice a bit high, is it, is it grating, is it monotone, all of that. So audio also is a good little uh, prep. Also, I'm a big proponent of perfect practice, not just practice. So I've seen many you know, students who are tempted to say, well, I know the competition only gives me 15 minutes to make an argument. But in all my practices, I'm going to use 25 minutes, and halfway through, I'm going to break character and say, okay, can I just break character for a moment and talk about this? Mm -hmm. That never happens in a mood, so why would you ever practice that way? Yeah. So when you practice, you practice properly. It's what students, when they're writing exams, a practice exam, if it says two hours, you take two hours. You don't take four. Yeah. Otherwise, you're fooling yourself into thinking you can actually finish an exam. Also, as a more general question, is there are there techniques that students can adopt to become clearer speakers so that they're actually enunciating every single word and uh, uh, clear in their speech? Yes. So aside from just slowing down, adopting a point-first methodology, which is you make your point and you support it, and you only support it with the relevant facts and law, what students fail to recognize is that, especially North Americans, more than other English speakers I've heard, we tend to be very lazy speakers. We don't use all the muscles in our mouth. We have 
because everyone else understands us, we tend to not emphasize the right consonants or vowels in a word. And to a non-native speaker, it makes it very difficult to understand. And even to native speakers, it can be hard to understand. Mm -hmm. So I do uh, use exercises to loosen the jaw. That way, it's, I mean, and then when, you, when, when I say this to people, it suddenly starts making sense. I would say, would you ever start exercising without warming up your muscles first? Mm -hmm. And what is your jaw? It's full of muscles. And that's what is your tool for speaking along with your diaphragm. So it makes perfect sense in that context to warm it up before you go in and you start speaking. That loosens it. Also, it's about pronouncing words the way they ought to be pronounced, which loosens your muscles. And when I do this with students, often their, their jaw will hurt a little bit because they've never exercised those muscles before to really pronounce the word properly. So those are some more exercises. We've all experienced the difficulty of translating the way we can execute in practice into executing at the same level during the game time. So call the game the high stakes moment. How do you prepare optimally for the high stakes moment? Well, one thing I do to students is I try to replicate the hottest, highest stress possible moment they could go through. So that's why when, when I'm training students, I'm putting them through hell. And the philosophy I use is to say, again, it's like working out. If, you're, if you start lifting 100 pounds and then you drop quickly to 50 pounds, 50 pounds seems very light versus if you started with 50. So I make it high pressure. I'll pepper them with questions. I'll be borderline rude with them. I will be dismissive of their points. I'll do everything so that when they actually get to the moot, they say, well, this is not nearly as difficult as it was with that guy. So that helps them. In doing that, I'm also usually picking up what the natural reaction of the student is. So sometimes the natural reaction is they panic and they start speaking too quickly. Other natural reaction is to become rude. So because of that, I get to identify it and I say, all right, at that moment, let's take the example of the person who was rude. What was going through your head? And they might say, I wanted to kill you. I say, great. And your reaction then was to get rude. Next time you feel I want to kill you, your reaction instead of getting rude is let's take a glass of water. Mm -hmm. So we try to fix those moments so that because what, what I realized uh, and I'm glad I came to this realization early, is I don't try to create the same type of speaker. I just try to take a speaker and work with what they've got. And some people are have quicker tempers. Other people, it takes a long time for them to even get awake. So whatever I've got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with that. Versus trying to take, if I tell somebody who's quick to, to, to yell at somebody who has a, has a short temper, here's, here's the deal. Stop having a short temper. You can't do that. Instead, I could say, we recognize you have a short temper. Let's see if we can get you to understand when that temper is about to happen, and immediately that's where we're going to do something. I'm not telling that person to, have a, to no longer have a short temper. I'm just trying to give them tools to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And also probably by recognizing they have a short temper and constantly being told that their temper might even go away. Yes, yes <laughs> yeah, we hope that. Uh, one of the most important part of the moot itself is the first two to three minutes when you're making that opening statement, yeah. when you're laying down the case, telling them what arguments you're going to make. Yeah. 
So what are certain things that a student should be covering in that first two to three minutes in their opening statement? So aside from the niceties of introducing themselves, which is actually important. And that's introducing themselves as well as their partner. As well as their partner, yeah, absolutely right. Aside from that, a roadmap is very important. It's at basic point, you can think of it this way. Tell me why and what you're about to say for the next 15 minutes. So the what is your roadmap and the why is why does this even matter? Mm -hmm. If you can get that point across, at least it's making it easier for me to follow. So if you say, I am here because my client was tricked out of his or her house and I have three points to prove that. The first is the negotiation, the second is a contract itself, and the third is what happened after the contract. You know, if you lay out that that's how you're basically going to proceed, already I know that this is about somebody being tricked, and there are three instances where they're going to show me that there is trickery happening, and it's negotiation, purchase, and after. Already I can see the structure of your argument, so if you then say, let me move to my first one, the negotiation. You've given me lots of roadmaps, keywords that are easy for me to figure out. I know why you're telling me this. It was all to prove that your client was tricked. The first few minutes are critical. If you don't do that, then I don't know why you're talking about anything. Yeah. Some methods, you know, the classic method, which I definitely don't use, is to start with facts. Facts are meaningless if I don't have a context for them. So I need that context to know why the facts you're telling me are important. It's also why I don't like the classic facts, then the issues, then the argument. Because all you're doing is repeating a lot of information, wasting so much time. I'd rather you tell me the issue. So you're giving me the roadmap, you've already told me the issue up front, remind me of the issue, then tell me the facts that matter. Mm. And then I'm immediately seeing, oh, the issue is this. The relevant facts that speak to that issue, now they're being told to me. They're also giving me the relevant law. I can put that together and figure out what's going on, and then we move to the next point. It's what I would call an issue-driven approach to arguing. What are some tips uh, for a student to calm their nerves in the moment within that first 30 seconds of saying the first word? Well, that's what's so great about having some of the niceties. One point I always uh, make to students who are nervous, who like to look down and read, is often they'll read, they're not actually reading, but they're looking down when they're telling me their name. I stop them there. I say, do you not know your name? And of course they're like, well, yeah. Well, then why are you reading it? So the nice part about those first few bits is they let you, some people refer to it as clearing your throat. You know if it's morning or afternoon, so you can say, good morning. My name is, you know your name. My partner's name is, you know your partner's name, you know your client's name. So already the first 20 seconds is information you know and nobody's going to disagree. Nobody's going to say, no, your name's not Anthony. So that gets the nerves and if you can hit that right, already you're into it and you've warmed up like an engine. So that's why those opening moments are important. I also tell students, never ever read. Because if the first time you're speaking to your bench, you're looking at them, they give you a lot more latitude if you do look down. But if you open by looking down, automatically they're saying, uh-oh, we've got a reader. Yeah. If you're the first 
person going up, you summarize your points and you give them the three points that you're going to make. Do you do the same thing for the second person that will be speaking as well in your team? Or you just kind of give a very high level uh, point of what they might be speaking yeah, about? Yeah, I would say high level, and there are a few reasons. One, you don't want to spend so much time on an opening. Second, you want to signal to the bench that my partner is going to deal with the fault, the other issues. And that means, at the very least, you prevent a judge asking you a question on an issue that's not really yours. Also, if you have a theme, then it makes sense that there's a second half to the story, which is what your client's going to deal with. So often in MOOCs, the first speaker deals with important procedural questions. The second speaker deals with some substantive questions. So if you say we have two broad issues, arguments relating to procedure, arguments dealing with the substance, I'm going to deal with a procedure in particular, points one and two. My client will then take over, my, sorry, my, my partner will then take over and deal with the substantive issues dealing specifically with a contract. Let me now speak to you about the procedural issues. You've now at least, anyone who had a question about the contract will probably not ask you that. But if you don't give some high level version of what your partner is, they don't know if maybe you meant the contract inside of your procedure and they might throw you the question. Mm -hmm. At which point you have to give some answer, but really what you're going to say is, actually that's for my partner, which just looks bad. And if you are asked one of those questions that might be your partner's, is it a good idea for two people to actually know each other's mm -hmm. argument? 100%. Uh, I, I make our students know the broad arguments everywhere. Because the, the best way to go is to give a quick answer and then say, but my, my partner will expand on that. The worst thing you can do is basically say, hmm, I don't know, not my job, my partner, not much of a partner. If you're saying not my job, it's that person's job. So you don't want to look like silos or two islands standing there. It's mm -hmm. very much a team. So you need to know the argument. You might not need to know the intricacies of it, but you need to know the basic answers. Absolutely. What, what can um, the team members that are not at the podium do to support the person on the podium, or, or at least yeah. keep that cohesiveness? So that depends on the moot sometimes, of what you're allowed to do. Moots where students are seated together at a table, the second, the non-speaker becomes very important. They should control the record so that the speaker shouldn't have to flip through pages. They should be writing down questions, watching the time, all of that stuff. They should also help their partner. If their partner, say, has a tendency to speak quickly, they should have a technique that they know in advance that if I put my pen in the middle of a binder, that means you're speaking too quickly, slow yourself down, whatever, whatever is going to be useful to them, they should do. So that one does that. In other moots where there's a speaker who goes and walks up to a podium and the non-speaker stays at the table, that non-speaker can still be useful to, to start noting down what's really concerning the judges. So that when they get up, they might be able to deal with it, or they might be able to say, look, I was noticing that that judge really didn't like this point. Maybe if the other side talks about it, we'll have a rebuttal point because that seems to be what the judge cares about. So even then, it's important for the second speaker to be there. Tell you what I've seen as the worst thing a second speaker can do is just daydream as if, okay, good, it's not my turn, it's my partner's turn, and then only when it's my turn do I wake up. Because again, you look like a silo. What are your thoughts on passing notes between each other uh, when, when one person is speaking? As long as it doesn't distract, the speaker, it can be okay. What can often happen though, and that's why I'm very, I'm, I'm reluctant to, to have our teams pass notes, although it can happen, is it risks undermining the speaker. Mm -hmm. So if I'm watching a, 
a speaker argue, and I notice his or her partner passing a note, the first time I might say, that's interesting. I'll then watch the speaker to see how they integrate the note. If they just glance down and continue, I say, oh, that's pretty slick. But if I start seeing the note being passed five, six, seven times, the message I'm getting, which may or may not be true, is the partner thinks that the main speaker is screwing up mm -hmm. and they're trying to fix it. So that then makes me look at that speaker and say, well, I, I might not even know what you're doing wrong, but obviously you're doing something wrong. Yeah. So it's not, a, it's not good. Uh, so, and I've actually chastised other schools on that when I sit as judging. You know, I've told a speaker before that he was undermining his partner by constantly passing her notes, making her, and it was obvious she was getting flustered by it because he'd push it in front of her, it would make her react and look, then she didn't know where she was, and it was just a disaster. Especially their color notes, right? Some people, some yeah. teams do the yellow, green, red, uh, yeah. different notes for timing. You know, so much about it should be, all I should be focused on as a judge is who's speaking to me. Yeah. Everything else is a distraction. So yes, colored notes, if I start seeing a rainbow, I, I'm <laughs> concentrating on that. And that's bad. Any tips for rebuttal? Yes. First, of course, I have to be short. I, to me, a rebuttal is, is it's, a, it's maybe a, a, a violent analogy, but think of having a sword, you lean over, you cut them very quickly, and you run back. And what you hope is now they're supposed to answer while they're trying to patch up their wound. If you give a long rebuttal, it's as if you slice them, they started to bleed, and your rebuttal's still going on, they've patched themselves up, they've even maybe stitched up the wound, and they're just waiting for you to be done, and then they say, and now I'm ready. You don't want that. You really want to force them into a position where they're bleeding and trying to answer a question. The other thing about a rebuttal, which is underused by teams, is m almost all your rebuttals should be prepared in advance. And really, there should be no surprises that you know, if you've prepared your file, you probably know what the other side is going to say. You know what their best arguments are, you know what their medium ones and their weakest ones. So you should have an answer to everything, and you're just sitting there ticking off what they've been saying for what you've already prepared a rebuttal and then you choose one that they've maybe made the biggest mistake on or the one that's the most damning to their case. And then it looks impressive. If you can get up and you say very quickly they have cited to this case, of course they did not ignore that that is a dissenting opinion which was overturned or something like that and then you just sit down and then the whole bench is looking at the other side saying they basically just said the case you relied on uh, you misled us, what is your answer? Mm -hmm. And what could their answer be? And all of that is prepared in advance. Mm -hmm. well, let's focus on one of the critical components of uh, the mood itself, which is the questions. Mm. That is something that a lot of students get scared of, and usually that's where either the moods are won or lost. Yes, I agree. So what are some things that a student could do to make sure that they answer questions appropriately and uh, fall in the winning category? Every question should be answered yes or no. There's no other answer to a question. People can say, well, what about a question that says, can you give me the facts in this case? You might say, well, you don't answer yes or no to that, you give the facts. In reality, the question is, can you? Yes. Will you? Here they come. So everything really can be yes, no. Most students don't do that. Mm -hmm. Most students are scared to answer yes or no because they're scared of committing themselves. It actually doesn't matter. Because you can say yes, however, no, but, 
all that matters is what comes after the yes or no. But the yes or no is very important from a, a question answer because it immediately makes a judge feel like you're answering the question. It also allows a judge to follow the path you're on. Because if the question is shocked and the answer is yes, you might go down the left path mm -hmm. or no, the right path. Yes, no tells me which path and I can start following you. But if you don't give me that, I don't know which path you're going down, so immediately your answer isn't clear to me. So you begin with yes, no, and then you make your case. You can prepare in advance. If you're honest to your case, you should know what the difficult questions are. And most questions should be anticipated. Mm -hmm. So the answer, uh, the best way to prepare is obviously to know the questions. If you don't know the question, then, well, it's, it's, if it's the judge's fault that you don't know the question, because either the judge's question is phrased incomprehensibly, then you, you may allow, you may ask the judge to rephrase the question. You get to do that, I think, once in a moot. Beyond that, it means that you risk being disrespectful towards the judge, because you're almost saying, Your Honor, you just don't know how to ask a question which you don't want to do. So you get to ask the re can you rephrase once? And then you also get to do a slightly sneakier um, technique, which is to rephrase it. So you might say, Your Honor, are you asking me? And then you recast the question that you hoped the judge would ask. Sometimes you can get away with that. But yes, no, here comes my answer is the best thing. You just answer it with the facts and the law if you can. I guess one of the things that also scares students is thinking that every single time a question is asked, they're being tricked mm. or they're being put in a box where they're probably trapped and they can't get out of. Yeah, that, that I see that a lot. Um, and there are different, from a technique perspective, it, it comes down to if you know your case and you know what to concede on, where students get into a lot of trouble are with hypotheticals and that's where they're scared to say yes or no to a hypothetical, if they know their case well, then they know how far they can move away from the real facts, and then they can answer whatever they think the judge wants, because you can always say, you know, Your Honor, if those were the facts here, I would agree with you. My client would not have a case. Fortunately, the facts that we have are here, and that's why my, my client does have a case. Mm -hmm. So that's understanding your facts. As far as being scared to say yes or no, Usually the opening question is an easy one. Most judges are, are nice enough to throw a softball. And if you're already scared of a softball, the judge is probably not going to be too impressed. As far as all questions being trapped, sometimes they're not. Sometimes it's just a judge trying to really understand the logic of your argument. I don't know, uh, I, I feel very repetitive saying if you're comfortable with your case, mm -hmm. then you should be able to work around that. And then other times, you just, it's, you know, you don't have a perfect case. Yeah. And then you can just say, look, Your Honor, yes, my client did not act perfectly, but my client acted perfectly enough to still win here. Or you may just have to say, well, I've reached the most I can do at this point. I see I'm not convincing you on it. I do have other points that would still allow me to win, so let me move to those. How important is conceding? That's something that yeah. students are very scared to do as well. You're right, and it's, it is very important because, again, it's about you can lose many battles and still win the war. If you go in and treat every battle as a war, you'll never get out. Mm -hmm. So, yes, concede is very important. 
but you of course have to know what you can concede without undermining your case. Yeah. So our teams very often concede points just to get to the meat of a, of a case, and it's historically been seen as a positive thing. Fantastic. I got one more. Yes. So what gives you such a knack for all the psychology you, you apply in crafting these championship mood teams? That I have many. I, it's it's a difficult. I don't, you know, but people say, oh, is there some secret? The immediate answer is no, and I'm not trying to be difficult. You know, it's just there is no one secret. As far as just knowing the insight, uh, I'm going to reveal things that I've never revealed to anybody else. It's a combination of a lot of just what has happened to me in my life. For one thing, when I mooted, I made a critical error. And it's one of, it, but for that error, I probably would not be as effective as a coach as I am today. Because I was doing really well at this move. And I got tired. And when I got tired, I became, well, rude to an arbitrator. And the arbitrator, didn't like it and thanked me for it, and he was right to do it. I then remember how I felt afterwards, where you know I had had some very strong scores up until that point, and this one anomaly changed the outcome of my mood. So that's why I make sure students never get to make that mistake. So that's one driving point, because I still remember how that felt, and I never want any of my students to ever have that kind of a regret. I had not done that, I wouldn't have known how badly it feels, I'd probably be a much easier coach. Another point, though, is previous work experience. You know, I was, I used to, I worked at Budget Rent-A-Car for a time, and that alone taught me so much about people. I could tell, I could spot a person whose card was going to decline maybe nine times out of ten, just on the questions they're asking me. So it all, it just, I became just, trained in knowing what the status of this person is and what is going on with them, just of how they're approaching me, how they're asking me questions. Another part of my personality, and this is one part that very few people know, is that growing up, I was very much into magic. I was a, you know, I, I taught, I did something called mad science, which was teaching uh, kids about science and trying to make it fun. But I always felt that the program was a little too short. So I thought, well, what can I do to fill a little bit of time because these are young kids and there's only so much science you can give them. And I thought, magic. Every kid likes magic. That got me into magic and I became you know, pretty good at it. And doing magic, you learn so much about personalities. Some people hate to be fooled and all they want to know is how, is, how does that work. Others love to be fooled. And what I also realized is the most effective way to, quote unquote, fool someone, or in the case of arguing, getting a judge to agree with you, is to use a technique of letting them come onto the fish hook. Whereas a lot of people do the opposite, where they try to jam the fish hook into the mouth. I learned through all these other points of my life that it's much easier to make the fish hook very attractive to the fish and let the fish hook itself, and then you pull it out and you've got your meal. And I mean, maybe that's part of what has allowed me to be. However, you know, if it's been effective, that's what it is. That's an excellent place to end it. Well, thanks so much for taking uh, the time to speak with us. All right, my pleasure. Thank you guys for doing this. It's a really great value. I don't know if my 
mine is, but the other stuff he's doing is a great value to students. So, thank, thank you so you. much. Thank you very much. This is The Law School Show.